John Locke was born on August the 29th, 1632 in Somerset, England. He lived for 72 years. Claire Rydell Arsenis, in her new book, calls him America's philosopher. She writes in the preface, quote, Though he never set foot on American soil and died long before the creation of the United States, John Locke stands and has always stood at the center of American intellectual life. University of Montana professor Arsenis focuses on how Locke has captivated our attention for three centuries and has had an unparalleled influence on the development of American thought and culture. Claire Rydell Arsenis, who is a professor at the University of Montana, when did you first get introduced to John Locke? I first encountered John Locke probably in high school. I went to a public high school uh, in Montana, and I think I first encountered him in the context of history and government classes, uh, and then also, of course, as a consumer of American pop culture over the course of my high school and college years. What led you to doing a book, and what was your audience initially for this book? Mm. Yeah, so the book itself began with a bit of a a puzzle, a bit of a um, surprise. And it started uh, first as just a very sort of small paper that I decided to write in graduate school. Uh, To take a step back, by training as an undergraduate in my early years of graduate school, I was a classicist. I studied the ancient world. And then I became increasingly interested in how in particular Americans, but also other people in the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries used the ancient world, how what we might characterize as sort of the reception of the ancient world. But at some point, I decided that, you know, a lot had been written about what Americans thought about Plato and Aristotle and Cicero, and I wanted to write about something a little bit different. And so I started looking around for questions that that I had and people I was familiar with. And and one person um, that kept coming back to me time and again was John Locke. I was very familiar with his two treatises of government. I was introduced to them, as I said, in high school. I'd read them in college in the context of political theory and philosophy classes. And I thought, you know, I, I, I feel like I know something about Locke. I have a sense that he was important. He was important for the 18th century founding fathers. He's important in the 21st century. But there was something that was sort of murky and missing for me in the middle. And so like any historian interested in how people have understood other thinkers or texts over time, I started with a very basic question. And that question was, was the second treatise, the most famous of Locke's two treatises of government, was the second treatise published in the United States? And if so, when was it published? Of course, as I'm sure we'll get into, publication history does not mean uh, the same thing as influence or reception. There are many, many, many other measures of importance, but it's a sort of good first step. And so at the time I was at Stanford, And the Hoover Institution Library there had what were called National Union Catalogs, what I refer to um, as a kind of old school version of WorldCat. 
And I started paging through these national union catalogs to try to get a sense of, of Locke um, and to try to get a sense of the publication history of his, of his work, in particular, the second treatise. And in this back room uh, at the Hoover Library, in about 2010, 2011, I, I discovered something that was shocking to me. And what I discovered was that Locke's second treatise, the two treatises of government, wasn't published in the United States between the late 18th century, 1773, and the early 20th century. And what this, and this was surprising to me, right, because it was the text I knew best. It was a text that I assumed all Americans had always been attached to for reasons that, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about. But it wasn't published. And so why was this? Did this mean that it wasn't important? Did this mean that Locke wasn't important? Or did this mean that there was something else going on? And so with that as my starting point, I, I began actually looking at how Americans had read and used and thought about Locke um, over the course of American history. And in doing so, I, I discovered some, in, to my mind, quite sort of interesting and surprising things. And I discovered that the story of Locke in America is actually significantly more complicated and complex uh, than, than I had known previously. Paint a picture of John Locke. When did he live? Where did he live? Where did he go to school? What did he study? That kind of thing. Yeah, so, so Locke uh, was born in 1632 in Somerset, England. Uh, he dies in 1704, so he lives just into the 18th century uh, uh, in, in Essex, England as well. I refer to Locke as a 17th century philosopher, uh, and uh, he is, I, I would say, known for many things. He is a very uh, uh, polyvalent, sort of interesting and interested man. He's educated uh, primarily at Oxford, Christ Church, uh, where he is introduced to a range of subjects uh, from uh, what we would think of as being sort of science and, 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 and metaphysics uh, to theology uh, to uh, religion. What uh, did John Locke do in his personal life? So Locke's personal life is a bit of a, uh, not so much a mystery, but there's not maybe as much known about it as we uh, know about his, his public life and in particular his intellectual life. Um, but what we do know is that he was uh, a, a man who had many friends, and friendship became something that he actually wrote about and that Americans later on um, would think of him as a kind of authority on. But he never married. He never had children. Uh, and he uh, also suffered from um, several uh, health ailments, in particular asthma, which meant that he, especially later in life, was forced away from London and the smoke and the smog um, to the English countryside, uh, where he spent um, his, his final years writing and reflecting, um, in particular, on, on, on questions of, of, of religion. Uh, but he's a, uh, an, an interesting man uh, who I think um, biographers have done a nice job uh, illuminating for us, uh, and whom I think, especially in the 18th and 19th century, Americans found very appealing. They found him a very 
um, uh, uh, sort of in, interesting person to think with because I think they found him rather ordinary. There are amusing anecdotes that emerge about Locke spending days trying to get a pair of gloves made. We have a sense of him as a real human being, a kind of you know humble, uh, curious person, rather than some disconnected philosopher uh, secluded in a kind of ivory tower. He's really a sort of down-to-earth um, man uh, who's living, of course, in a very tumultuous time, which gives him a lot of opportunities to write and to think about topics that are meaningful to him and that remain meaningful to people um, since the 17th century. If I read it correctly, you graduated from the University of Wisconsin in 2010? I did. What did you study there? So I studied classics primarily, uh, so ancient Greek and Latin. Uh, I was initially drawn to archaeology. I thought that accessing the past through material culture uh, would be a sort of interesting uh, uh, topic of study and then a career. But I pretty quickly discovered that what I wanted to do, in fact, was understand what people were thinking about, not so much what they what they did or how they lived, but rather what, what occupied um, their, their minds. And so, of course, I moved to bit away from archaeology and eventually away from classics um, to more in the direction of political theory and philosophy, uh, and then finally history. Do you credit anybody in your life of getting you involved in this? Like you talked about getting interested in Locke in high school, but what about this overall mission that you've been on? Yeah, so ab- absolutely. I mean, I really I, I uh, give a tremendous amount of credit to uh, Professor Jennifer Rotner Rosenhagen at the University of Wisconsin. She was a, a mentor of mine, and she really introduced me to the, the field of uh, American intellectual history through her, her work on um, Nietzsche. And I took a fantastic seminar from her on, on Emerson um, my junior year of college that opened my eyes to the American or United States uh, side of things with respect to political theory and philosophy and intellectual history. Uh, and I would say that for, for sort of me, those very formative years in college and early graduate school, she played a very important role. And then also Carolyn Winter, who supervised my PhD dissertation, uh, who has been asking similar questions about the American Enlightenment uh, in the 18th century and how it's remembered in a century since. So I feel very fortunate to have two um, important and and strong uh, mentors who have helped me and guided me over the last 10 to 15 years. I was introduced to your book um, in the Wall Street Journal with the review by Barton Swaim. Do Mm -hmm. Do you have any sense how that got there? This is a book published by the University of Chicago. They uh, often don't, you know, promote them the same way some of the commercial booksellers do. Uh, give us a sense of and what what impact has this review had on uh, you know since this book has come out? Yeah, so I mean, I, I give a tremendous amount of credit to the press uh, for doing a good job of, of publicizing my book. And maybe to go back to one of your earlier questions about my intended audience uh, before I speak about the the Wall Street Journal review in particular. 
Right. I mean, I've written an academic book. I've written a book um, who that, that I hope speaks to people in the academy. But at the same time, I hope I've written a book that also interests and speaks to a wider uh, a public um, of, of interested uh, people around the world uh, and perhaps in the United States in particular. Why the Wall Street Journal picked up on it, I think, speaks in large part to the continued relevance and importance that Locke plays in contemporary uh, political debates and political discourse. And so I think that many Americans have a very, um, even if they don't know a whole lot about Locke, they, they have a sort of sense, as I did, that somehow Locke is important for the American story. And so I think that readers uh, might might be drawn to my book uh, with uh, a sort of sense of Locke's importance and then hoping, I hope, um, to, to find out a little bit more about that. I, I think what, what uh, Mr. Swain's review in the Wall Street Journal has done for the book, of course, is increased uh, awareness of it. But I also think in some ways, I, and if I may speak frankly here, I, I think Swain misses some of what I'm hoping to do and what I hoped to do with this work, which is introduce Americans to how different Locke was in the 18th and 19th centuries, no matter what we think about him today. And that in arguing for the the the, the diversity of ways in which Americans have used Locke, my intention is not to downplay or minimize Locke's political thinking um, or its importance for Americans in the past, but rather to place that in a much broader and deeper context of American well, obsession with Locke for all sorts of reasons in the 18th century. And what I also think was interesting about um, Mr. Swaim's, you know, review and commentary, which I very much appreciated, he engaged, I think, seriously with, with my work. Um, but he also took my work as a uh, rejection of Locke's importance for uh, a tradition of liberalism uh, and a tradition of American political thinking. And in fact, I think what my book does is show that in some ways Locke is much more important in the 18th century for the generation of the American founders than we have previously known, but he's important in slightly different ways. And he's important primarily because a whole range of Americans, not just the sort of elite political thinkers, people like Jefferson and Madison and others, are reading and, and thinking and engaging with his political thoughts. But because Locke permeates American intellectual life, mothers are raising their children according to Locke's you know, um, uh, uh, recommendations for child rearing. They've encountered Locke primarily as an epistemologist, as somebody who helps them understand how humans acquire knowledge and, and understanding of the world around them. And so all of the more particular political uses need to be understood in the context of this much deeper and richer engagement with Locke. And we can talk more about this, I, I, I suspect, you know, later during this hour. But maybe the final thing I'll say is I think 
there's a tendency, and this is, of course, a very live debate in the historical profession, especially over the last couple of weeks, about what role historians have in speaking to present-day concerns or interpreting the present or using the past to inform or, or, or justify certain political, let's just say for the time being, political stances in the 21st century and the contemporary uh, sort of modern world. And what I think my book does is show that there's also value in, in taking a step back and rather than saying, how can I use Locke to justify a political agenda, be that a political agenda of the right or the left in the contemporary United States, what value, I ask, is to be gained from trying to understand the past on its own terms and to understand Locke not as we in the 21st century understand him, whether or not we embrace him or reject him or something in the middle, but, but there's value in actually trying to understand why Locke mattered for someone living 200 years ago. And there's a kind of intellectual humility that goes into a project like that, because what I know today or what you or any of our listeners know today is just fundamentally different from what someone 200, 250, 100, whatever it is, however many years ago knew about Locke. And there's that kind of spirit of, of curiosity that I try to bring to my work in assuming that I don't know everything about the ways in which my historical actors approached this text or this thinker or this, this, this question, and rather really trying to actually listen to them without having contemporary debates over liberalism or conservatism or who's on the right or who's on the left, rather than having those debates provide the lens for the ways that I'm trying to ask questions about and access the past. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. As you know, you in your epilogue, you tell a story. <clears throat> um, it's a short story about uh, a stay and and uh running an uh, apartment there in Montana mm-hmm. and Mr. Swain who's not without a point of view he's a very strong point of view um picked yes. up on that tell that story and then put that into context with what you've just been saying and Mr. Swain Yeah absolutely no I'm really glad that, that you mentioned this I there's always the question of how do you bring a book to a close and what I did in my epilogue is, as you say, I tell a story. So I'm from Montana. I'm born and raised in Montana. I've spent many years away from my home. 
And on a recent move back uh, to Missoula, to the University of Montana, where I'm a professor now, I stayed in the Airbnb. So I rented a room from someone. I don't know who this person is. And what I noticed, of course, immediately upon entering this Airbnb was that there was a, a, a big Getson flag flying, a big yellow don't tread on me flag flying outside um, this, this house, which is very common and typical in Montana. This doesn't stand out in any way. Um, it didn't particularly surprise me, nor did I think much of it. And so as I'm walking inside uh, to uh, put down my luggage and rest for the night, I noticed that this, that this apartment that this person's renting has bookshelves filled with books. And that's often not something that you see in Airbnb apartments. You often see sort of back issues of National Geographic or other magazines that the host isn't interested in, in paying attention to anymore. But this Airbnb host had, had books. And it was books, I assume, that this person had read uh, and, and thought were important. And there were quite a few of them. And so I started perusing the bookshelves. And what I found in the sort of at eye level was a copy of Locke's two treatises. The, the work, um, again, that I think many Americans know Locke best for. And surrounded on, on either side of this, this copy of Locke's work were work that I would associate with um, more right-leaning thinkers, uh, which of course, the libertarian right in particular, um, uh, works on um, gun rights and the history of the pistol, but also a copy of the United States Constitution. And what I thought in that moment was that here's someone, right? There, here's an American, a proprietor of this Airbnb, who is reading and thinking about and taking Locke seriously. And he's doing so, or she's doing so, in a way that, that I think many readers would find familiar and resonate with them if they've watched shows say like Parks and Recreation where the main character one of the main characters Ron Swanson's this kind of archetype libertarian and he has a fondness for Locke and Locke's commitment to the protection of of private property uh, and minimal government but in that moment I also wanted to draw attention to or in capturing this moment in the story that I tell in my epilogue I wanted to draw attention to the fact that both both recognize that this is the, the version of Locke that many Americans today know. And, and also point out that this is not the version of Locke necessarily that Americans in the past would have known. But I really, I, I, I hope, and I was in some ways disappointed that Mr. Swain read this story. With, um, I think he framed it as a, I, I had a tone of derision. And that's not at all how I intended it. In fact, I hope that in reading my book and in reading my epilogue, people, my readers, don't know my political persuasion, and that instead there's value in, in paying attention to the fact that that is this version of Locke, a kind of don't tread on me spirit of minimal government, that this version of Locke is, is, is captivating to many Americans today, and that's not necessarily right or wrong or good or bad. But it's different from how past Americans would have understood him. And I, I don't know if it would have made a difference had Mr. Swain, for example, known that I was from Montana 
um, or known, had an opportunity to talk to me a little bit about the spirit of what I was trying to capture here. But I think what his review did is, is, is spoke to the, the, the ideological stakes of saying something about Locke um, in the 21st century United States. And in bringing my story up to the present in that way, just with an anecdote that I, I, that I think uh, might give some readers pause or might seem very familiar to others, is my effort to uh, include and bring in as many different uh, people, audiences, readers as possible and invite them to participate in the story of, of understanding loss as past Americans did, rather than just as, as we do today. On a not too recent, but in my lifetime, uh, recent discussion that you had on civil rights, you talked at least about two politicians, and I wanted to ask you how this fits, Hubert Humphrey and Robert Byrd. And Byrd, a Democrat, though, tried to stop the civil rights bill back in 1964, uh, and Humphrey uh, was very much for the civil rights bill. Both of them used Locke. Explain that. And mm-hmm. have you seen this in other places in, in the discussion of Locke over the last three centuries? Yeah, absolutely. So this was a sort of surprising discovery of, of mine, uh, which was that in, so in the United States in the 1950s and 1960s, Locke becomes quite partisan. And what I mean by that is that there's a general understanding from both, let's, let's for the sake of simplicity, say the right and the left or uh, sort of liberals and conservatives. Uh, there's a general acceptance and understanding of Locke's importance. This is what many historians have termed a kind of liberal consensus. Uh, although the word liberal there, I think, can be a bit misleading. Uh, it's referring much more to uh, a, a not not so much a sort of big D Democrat or political party, but rather um, a, a, a sort of understanding of an, an American political tradition as connected to commitments to democracy and small liberalism, et cetera. But so there's this understanding in the mid 20th century, the 1950s and 1960s, Locke is incredibly important. And there is a sort of brief moment, let's just say, in about the 1940s, when there's not a whole lot of debate or discussion over sort of how to interpret Locke depending on one's political persuasion. There's just a sort of sense that somehow Locke and, 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 and his political writings in particular are essential for understanding what makes American political thinking in the United States exceptional, extraordinary. Why isn't America succumbing to totalitarianism, communism, or socialism? And Americans of all political stripes are turning to Locke to help them answer this question. Beginning in the 1950s and 1960s, as you say, and in particular, actually, I discovered in the context of debates over civil rights legislation, there begin to be two different ways of interpreting Locke. Again, both sides recognizing or or, or understanding Locke is somehow important. 
But you have those who are opposed to civil rights legislation, people like Byrd, who are using Locke and, and emphasizing Locke's commitment to individual rights that a government, say the federal government, trying to uh, in, impose civil rights legislation on unwilling individuals doesn't have the right to do. And the emphasis here on this side is on Locke's defense of and commitment to, in particular, individual property rights and private property in particular. And there's a tremendous amount of discussion uh, that emerges over the, 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 the question of the language of the Declaration of Independence. And in Jefferson's triad of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, does the pursuit of happiness mean property or does it mean something different? And so those opposed to civil rights legislation, people like Byrd and, and, and others, will, will turn to Jefferson, turn to the Declaration of Independence and turn to Locke and say what Jefferson meant here by the pursuit of happiness was essentially the same thing that we would understand as being the, the right to private property and essentially the right to be relatively left alone from an overbearing federal or, or, or government. Those on the other side, people like Humphrey, those who are supportive of civil rights legislation and see the tremendous good that it, that it and, and this, the necessity for it, they don't say that Locke is unimportant. They don't say that we don't need to be paying attention to the second treatise. We don't need to be paying attention to Jefferson. We don't need to be paying attention to any of these questions that are also consuming their opponents of civil rights legislation. Instead, they say we need to pay attention to the ways in which Americans in the 18th century, people like Thomas Jefferson, changed the triad of life, liberty and property to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in so doing, actually expanded beyond a kind of narrow conception of commitments to individual property and individual rights. And instead, we're much more concerned about the, the greater good and concerned and, and, and interested in uh, questions to do with society and community and equality rather than individual property rights. And this was interesting to me because I think particularly in contemporary, this is another example of how things were different with respect to Locke's place and reception and influence uh, in the 1960s than they are today. I think many people now on both the right and the left are willing to give up on Locke. Why, why pay it? We, we don't need Locke. We don't need the second treatise. If this is a text, if you're on the left in the United States today, we don't need to be paying attention to the 17th century English philosopher. In the 1960s, no matter your political commitment, you thought that this was something that you needed to grapple with and, and use also to help actually make your debate, your, your, your case, and use to help strengthen your arguments and debates that are taking place um, uh, in U.S. Congress and throughout um, Washington, D.C., and really across the country. There's a, 
a quote that you have in the book that got my attention. I, it just seemed to be very useful, and I want to read it. And this was the, the, the paragraph that you have from Life magazine that you say the editors wrote in 1949. If you don't mind, it's 15 seconds. I'll read it and then get your reaction to it. Uh, Life magazine editors said, In their struggle for the world... The communists have one great advantage over the West, and that is the power to generalize their positions and their aims. They have their book, Das Kapital, it doesn't say this, Karl Marx wrote it, and the commentaries therein by Lenin and Stalin. The West, too, has its basic books and commentaries, but it has forgotten how to read them. John Locke, the father of the American Constitution, molders in the libraries. Jefferson is a series of Fourth of July catchwords. Adam Smith, author of The Wealth of Nations, is an excuse for economic barbarism, not the Scottish moralist who attacked the monopolistic businessmen. We have only the dimmest idea of where we came from, and hence it is impossible to know precisely where we are to what destination we are bound. That's 1949. Why did you put that in your book? Yeah, I, I love that. I love that passage. I think it encapsulates so many aspects of Americans' concerns in the mid-20th century that, that stem from a certain kind of, of uncertainty and insecurity. It's very easy, right, for us to look back on the, the early Cold War moment, the immediate post-war years of the late 1940s and early 1950s, and know what happened later in the 20th century. Uh, but people living in 1949 didn't know what was going to happen. There was a tremendous sense of, of to, to use the word again, of insecurity. When it came to thinking about the, the basis for and the contours of a political tradition. So let me explain what I mean by this. So. The, the idea that there is an American political tradition in the singular is an invention of this moment, of this post-war, mid-20th century moment, when Americans, professors, journalists, lawyers, public intellectuals, teachers, students, a whole range of people began to ask questions about, as I said a few minutes ago, why, why isn't totalitarianism threatening the United States in the way that it threatened, say, Western Europe? Why isn't communism as appealing to Americans as it is to some other people around the world? And there were these questions about what made, in their eyes, America exceptional or extraordinary. And in answering these questions, they, they began to realize that, as this quote that you just read captures so nicely, that there was a sense that, that the Soviet Union uh, had thinkers that they could identify as being the source for their political tradition, whether or not that's a tradition of Marxism or socialism or communism, that they had someone say like Karl Marx in particular. And who did Americans have? 
did, did we have the founding fathers? Do we have the Federalist Papers? Or is there actually some sort of deeper source for American political thinking that we that that they thought that they could use to help explain the the uniqueness of an American political tradition? And there's this incredible uh, surge of, of interest in in writing about and paying attention to this question of what is the basis for well, first of all, is there an American political tradition? And if so, what is it? And what is its basis? And conveniently, over the course of the earlier part of the 20th century, Americans had been paying increasing attention to Locke as a political thinker over the course of the years of the First World War and the 1920s and 1930s. And they've been paying attention to uh, the ways in which Locke uh, helped connect a, 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 uh, the United States to a broader Anglo-Saxon tradition of constitutionalism, uh, uh, a democracy, uh, anti-authoritarian government. But what was interesting is in this post-war moment of the late 1940s and early 1950s, all of a sudden Locke went from being a, 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 an English philosopher who spoke and informed this Anglo-Saxon tradition of politics to being identified by Americans as peculiarly and particularly relevant for and having exerted an particularly important influence on Americans, and that it was people living in the United States who could truly claim to have John Locke as their, uh, as a kind of intellectual founding father, even more so than people living in Great Britain or anywhere else in the world. And so this, this, this moment where Americans begin to associate Locke and pri primarily the second treatise of government with an American political tradition emerges out of a moment of insecurity and uncertainty rather than out of a moment of um, uh, 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 confidence, let's just say, about what the nation had in store. And I think that's, I think that's important to capture. And I think that the Life magazine uh, uh, folks do a nice job of, of um, speaking to this in this particular piece. Maybe the final thing that I'll say that I, I think speaks directly to this as well is, you know, this is very much also the moment out of which one of the most famous books on the American political tradition and the liberal tradition in particular emerges, and that is the work of Louis Hartz's. Um, 1955, in which Louis Hartz, a professor of government at Harvard, right, attributes, um, uh, again, a certain kind of American exceptionalism, not, and I, I don't use the word exceptionalism uh, in a positive sense necessarily, but just sort of difference, American exceptionalism, um, to what he terms a kind of irrational Lockeanism, that there's some spirit associated with Locke and Locke's political thinking that has animated American political thinking over the centuries. And that this is what defines 
in American political tradition and makes it different from other countries' political traditions um, over the course of the past centuries and in the 20th century in particular. And, and Hertz's work uh, it goes on to be well-read and, and, and widely um, cited and reviewed and, and uh, if not praised, then at least it's incredibly important for how subsequent uh, writers, scholars, thinkers in the later 20th century uh, encounter and interpret Locke. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. By the way, Professor, how much of this book was your dissertation at Stanford? Yeah, so the the broad contours of it were my dissertation, but uh, the emphasis and the focus in particular that I place, the time that I spend on the 19th century uh, and some of the sort of strange things, and we can talk about these that I discovered about, you know, the, the very particular way in which 19th century Americans are using Locke. And even in the 18th century, many of my particular arguments, and I can give a couple of examples, um, really uh, didn't emerge until I'd done additional research after my dissertation. So I would say, sort of broadly speaking, the contours, the, 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 the dissertation provided a kind of framework for many of the questions that I was asking, but many of the conclusions and many of the the, the what's actually contained in my book was not in the dissertation. Uh, that was a product of, of continued and, and deeper research. Uh, and I'm happy to, if you'd like to just give a couple of examples of, of things that I discovered um, as I began asking more and more questions um, yeah, but about let, Locke. Let me ask you one other thing. <clears throat> I, yeah. I don't have a PhD, never will have one, don't know what the process is <laughs> like. But the reason I ask this question is when somebody does a dissertation, and they have to worry about the audience, meaning who's going to judge your dissertation and then you get your Ph.D. Does that, from your experience, affect what you write, how you write, what angle you take? Yeah, that's, you know, that, that's, a, that's a good question. And the short answer, of course, is yes, because ultimately in the context of graduate education and a PhD in particular, what you write has to uh, uh, pass muster. It has to please the committee of uh, your supervisors who are either ultimately going to decide whether or not you are deserving of the degree, your work is, is rigorous enough um, to uh, qualify as making a significant and new contribution uh, to the historical uh, profession and our understanding of the past. And so, of course, that's always what you have in the back of your mind is your very immediate audience of your PhD supervisors. And that's important. 
But I actually felt, and maybe I was, and I, you know, I'd be very curious to talk to other people. This is not actually something that I've spent a lot of time, you know, talking with colleagues about. But I actually felt like in my graduate career, I, I was encouraged to pursue bigger questions than I would be able to fully answer as a graduate student. And so my book, right, emerged out of a, an understanding that my dissertation would be a start. I would know what questions I would ask, be asking, and I would have a sense of some of my conclusions based on the research that I had done, but that my dissertation wasn't the end point. Rather, that was the beginning of then what would turn into a book. And so even from the very beginning, I felt free to think about my audience more broadly. And I felt free to think about reaching not just historians who are interested in uh, the history of, of intellectual life in the United States, but rather I thought about, you know, reaching an audience of philosophers, of political theorists, but also, as I said, even at the dissertation stage, not that people would read it, but that the questions that I would ask, I would be asking would be relevant for those people I had had conversations with on, you sit down on an airplane and someone asks you what you do. And after 30 minutes or 45 minutes, you find out that they're actually incredibly interested in John Locke or whatever aspect of American history we're talking about. But they've never been to graduate school. They're not even a history major. They're just an interested member of the public. And I always wanted my work to speak to them as much as it did to my PhD supervisor or the person who was actually going to be judging it uh, uh, for its intellectual and academic rigor. What year? Maybe just one other thing. Yeah. Or, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you what year you got your PhD at Stanford. So I got my PhD in 2016. So we're now in 2022. Uh, explain to us the process of how you get a book published. And from your knowledge, why did the University of Chicago think this was important enough to put in a book? Yeah. So this is something that uh, I think varies very much project to project. I decided early on that well, maybe just to take a step back, there are two routes, I would say, that historians can go when they publish a book, to, to speak sort of very simply. One is that they can go with an academic press, something like the University of Chicago, Princeton University Press, Harvard University Press, one of the big academic presses. And the advantage of this approach, and ultimately the reason why I chose this approach, is that those those presses are, are generally the ones that are marketing and promoting books to uh, fellow academics. And they also allow you the space in the context of your work to uh, uh, signal and to include the, the richness and texture of the research that you've done. So if you read my book, a lot of what a lot of my uh, work is, is happening in archives, looking at manuscripts that aren't published, that no one else is really looking at or paying attention to. For example, I spend a lot of time in collections of student notes from people who we don't know their names, but they 
their families deposited their notebooks from their college years in the Princeton Library. And I have access to those student notes, and I use those notes to help understand how that student in the 1880s was encountering Locke, say, at Princeton. And so in going with an academic press, I'm able to to include that kind of methodological and source-based information in, for example, extensive footnotes or in the way that I frame my discussion. Whereas in the other approach, the one that I didn't take, but that I think would have ultimately resulted in my book getting perhaps even more attention, would have been to go with a more trade route, to go with a, a bigger press, a bigger publishing house, not connected to a university. And the advantage there, of course, would be a wider audience, perhaps. The disadvantage for me was that it wouldn't let me do or demonstrate, demonstrate, I should say, um, and explain the kind of deeply archival and deeply academic work that undergirded a, 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 a book that I hope then speaks to a wider audience, if that makes sense. And so the process of publishing a book, again, varies. I was fortunate to work with um, a, uh, uh, a press and a series of editors who saw a lot of promise and potential in uh, my dissertation and in my uh, uh, the writing that I had done thus far, and give me a contract ahead of the finished product of the manuscript. And what that did is it allowed me the time and space, years in fact, many times academics have to write a book very quickly because you're trying to get tenure and you're teaching and you're doing a lot of things in those very early years of your academic career. And having a book contract that allowed me time to actually continue to research and continue to write and continue to hone my arguments, the fact that the University of Chicago did this, that their press did this, was ultimately one of the reasons why I, I, I went with them. And what this allowed me to do as well was accept a couple of, of big research fellowships that could fund my research and give me time away from my teaching uh, and my more sort of day-to-day -day administrative work um, here at the university and really give me the, 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 the time and space to immerse myself in these past worlds. And I remain tremendously grateful for that. The that, process of writing a book is a long one. <laughs> it takes many, many, many years. Uh, and uh, it's something that when you finish, it's, it's a bit bittersweet, right? Because there's always more that you want to say. There's always, there are always things that you weren't able to include, um, but you have to stop at some point. Um, and I'm happy, with, I'm happy with how it turned out. On that, one more process question. Um, you got a grant from the National Academy or the National Endowment for the Humanities. How did that work? Mm -hmm. Right. So I was very fortunate. So I had a year-long fellowship from the National Endowment for the Humanities and then also a year-long fellowship from the National Academy of Education and Spencer Foundation. And so there, I, I think like many listeners who are familiar with, with grant writing, you, you make a pitch. You, you write a proposal uh, persuading uh, the National Endowment for the Humanities in this case that your work is, is deserving and worthy of, of their financial uh, support. And uh, that's, of course, a very gratifying process, especially when it results in, in getting a, a grant or a fellowship. 
but it's also a very useful process I've found as an author because the process of putting together a grant application, trying to persuade someone to give me money to let me do the research that I want to do, is a very good way of clarifying my own uh, my own thinking, and in particular the significance and the importance of what I'm doing. Uh, and ultimately, the the grant, the way that academic grants often work in the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Spencer Foundation, their financial assistance, for which I'm tremendously grateful, allowed me then to step away for those two years from, as I said, my teaching and administrative duties because they were funding essentially my salary. Uh, and, and, And that's something that I feel extremely privileged to have been able to do. And I think ultimately it, it let me write a much more ambitious book um, that that tried to tackle 300 plus years of American history rather than just a piece of it. I want to go back to Barton Swaim's review because it, and I have no idea, I don't know the man, never talked to him, but my guess is that one of the reasons that he did the review was because he disagreed with what he thought your direction was. And I'm going to read another paragraph and then get your reaction. Um, Mm -hmm. He says, Ms. Arsenis has done valuable work in documenting Americans' affection for an empiricist philosopher. Her discussion of 20th century scholarly debates over Locke's significance from Leo Strauss to J.G.A. Pocock are accurate and well-expressed. Throughout the book, though, you sense that nobody can ever draw on Locke in a way that gains the author's approval. He then goes on to mention, as you know, uh, Richard Hofstetter, Arthur Schlesinger, and talks about how they formulated American political tradition in which Locke played a founding role, but they were mostly white men writing social, economic, and political conflict out of American history. That's a trigger word these days, white men. I am one. I understand that. (laughs) And I ask you, though, would life be different for us if it wasn't white men that had, like Locke, who had written what he wrote? (laughs) That's a good question. Yes, perhaps. But I'm hoping that a book like mine can move us a bit beyond that. And I say that because I actually think in some ways here, Swain is correct. I think you are right in that he disagrees with what he thinks I'm doing. But what he says here in what you just read about the fact that you no know, seems like no one in the past can curry favor with me, that's that's actually true because I don't view my role as a historian to, to say that someone is right or wrong or that this is a good interpretation or a bad interpretation of Locke, but rather to present these competing or different interpretations so that people today can understand them, not so that they can use them to justify a particular political ideological argument in the present day necessarily, but rather to inform the way that they understand their present. I think that on, and this is again, one of the things that I tried to capture in my epilogue, I think has Locke not been 
a, a, a white man, who, uh, maybe people on the academic left today who are most interested in, I think rightly so, recovering the perspectives and voices of, of um, those marginalized communities, often people of color or, or women, I think maybe they would be more interested and willing to listen to not just what someone like Locke had said, but also what the people I write about, many of whom primarily um, are, are, are white men. And I, I think that, though, in, in, in fixating on that and paying attention to that, Again, we're bringing our present and however important and valuable these questions are and how important they are today, if that's the only lens that we have to access the past, we miss so much. And we miss so much of the way in which our, our country and our nation developed. And just because the voices that, that are um, that are important for me, say, in my story, are those of white men, uh, I don't think doesn't mean that we shouldn't listen to them. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, 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 agree, praise, or uh, reject uh, them, but it, 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 it doesn't mean that we shouldn't listen. In fact, I think it means that we should listen all the more closely um, with a critical lens, with a critical eye, um, but again, in the spirit of understanding rather than curiosity, rather than in the spirit of uh, acceptance or rejection. Earlier, <clears throat> and it was my fault. It was my fault. I, you are, are going to give some examples of 19th century um, politics and John Locke, and we only have a couple minutes, but I want to be sure to give you a chance to, to uh, talk about that. Oh, sure. Happily. Yeah. So, so let, me, let me say two things. And these are two things that emerged for me uh, more in, in the course of writing my book rather than the sort of first iteration of my project in graduate school. The first is that my research uncovered a fundamental shift in the ways that Americans in the 18th century understood Locke as a political thinker. And what I show, particularly in the second chapter of my book, is that the moment of independence, the moment of 1776, doesn't actually turn Locke into a celebrated political thinker in the way that he will become in the 20th century. Now, I want to be perfectly clear, this does not mean that Americans are not reading and appreciating and using Locke's political thought, in particular his second treatise. They absolutely are. But they're actually doing so in, in, in slightly more complicated ways. What I mean by this is that in the years leading up to 1776, uh, there was an understanding um, among the, the revolutionary generation that Locke was important, that Locke spoke to concerns that they had about the encroachment of the English, the British government um, on the American colonies. And they used Locke in ways that other scholars and historians have, have documented very nicely. But what happened in 1776 and over the course of the 18, 
1770s and 1780s is that Americans actually begin to, to, to find fault with Locke's political thinking. And they do so because they begin to construe Locke as a political theorist, a political philosopher who's concerned about abstract questions of how government is formed and doesn't actually address or speak to particular uh, practical questions of of on-the-ground nation-forming and political creation. And instead, what they begin to do is they begin to portray and read Locke as as, uh, being sort of presenting valuable political theories, but not actually being able to put those political theories into practice. And they begin to draw more on their own experience at political and government formation than on the political theories of someone like Locke. So there's actually a really important shift that happens in the 1770s and 1780s that's lost when we simply say, ah, Locke was important. Or, no, Locke wasn't important because Americans were actually interested more in traditions of, say, republicanism, etc. But then let me just say one other thing, and this is connected. Perhaps the biggest surprise for me was the importance that a work of Locke's played in the 18th and 19th centuries that I had never heard of until I started actually doing research about Locke in the past. And that was Locke's fundamental constitution for the colony of Carolina. Uh, that um, he participated in creating in the late 1660s. And Americans in the 18th and 19th centuries turned to this this, this, this text, this document, where Locke um, and um, his, his patron, um, eventually the Earl of Shaftesbury, the Lord Proprietors of, of the Colony of Carolina, which have a charter from Charles, um, the second uh, to, to create a colony um, in the New World in the 1660s. Locke's involved in creating a government, um, a plan of government for this colony. And it is an absolute disaster. Um, it's authoritarian. It's essentially everything that, 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 that we understand Locke um, as having advocated for. It's everything that that isn't. Um, and Americans in the 18th and 19th centuries know that Locke tried to create a constitution, a set of, 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 of constitutions, a kind of government for this colony of Carolina, and that it failed miserably, and that it was absolutely rejected by Carolinians and by people who were actually on the ground in the colony in the 17th and 18th centuries. And we don't need to get into the weeds of Locke's exact involvement in this, which is actually debated. But the way that they understood this was that here we have this celebrated philosopher, this, this person who we uh, revere as, as, a, as an epistemologist and a metaphysician, somebody who thinks about and understands the world and, 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 and does a lot of value with respect to um, uh, the, the sort of philosophy and, and even political theory. But who, when the time came, this person failed to actually be able to put his ideas into practice. Again, this isn't necessarily what actually happened, but this is the way that 18th and 19th century Americans viewed Locke and the importance of the fundamental constitutions of Carolina for the way that 18th and 19th century Americans thought about Locke as a political philosopher was hugely surprising to me because it wasn't a text that I was familiar with, but it was a text that deeply mattered 
to Americans who were very concerned about the difference between and the relationship between political theory on the one hand and practical political experience on the other. Time is up. Thank you, Claire Rydell Arsenis, America's philosopher, so America's philosopher, John Locke, and American international intellectual. Excuse me. Life is the book published by the University of Chicago, and our guest, Professor Arsenis, is a professor uh, at Un- University of Montana. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time and uh, uh, the discussion. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.